I would like to, this morning, as I begin, read from Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels, and the judgments uttered by his mouth. Oh, Father, as we live in a tumultuous age, an age of tragedy, an age of wonderful things at the same time, and yet one in which most people live with, with great concern and uncertainty of the future, particularly after the events of this past year. And, and as we keep watching events unfold over in Israel and uh, in Iran and, and in between India and Pakistan and in the Philippines, all over the world, Lord, we see wars and rumors of wars. And we know that in it all there is no security in, in human effort. It only is our security rests in you. We're so grateful to be your children and that we can trust in you and know that you'll keep us no matter how difficult the situation may become. Lord, we know that you've said in your word that we're to pray for kings and those in authority over us. And we do pray for our president, that he will make choices that are wise, that he will seek godly counsel and that you will guard his speech and guide those who are in his administration and, and the leadership of Congress that uh, wise laws will be written and that you will uh, deal with the uh, infighting that seems to go on and, and the political haggling and pray that they'll focus on what really needs to be done for the good of this country. And Father, I pray for your blessing upon us now this hour as we study your word. Just grant to us insight and understanding. This is your word which you wrote through the men and women of the past and we just trust you now to direct our thoughts by your power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If we go back to the book of 2 Samuel, last time we ended class and we looked at the names of David's sons, you may remember, and I gave you the meaning of each of those names, and one of the names, which was the second one in the list, was Shobab. And I mentioned to you that Shobab in Hebrew means apostate or to turn back. And we were kind of thinking that's a bit of an odd name to name a child, but Dennis came up afterwards, and it probably popped in maybe into some other mind, I don't know, but that it could be that the child was breech-born, you know, born in reverse, born backwards, and therefore he was called turned back or reversed or apostate, which makes a very logical explanation for why you would name a child apostate, you know, or turned back, reversed. Uh, which is not very likely for a man of David's uh, stature and wisdom to uh, do. So I, I think that's very insightful. I think that collective thinking always is better than singular thinking, even though I did look through a lot of commentaries. So Dennis is going to uh, write to one of the commentators and straighten them out. <laughs> Let me read uh, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David as king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the, in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? 
And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore he named the place Baal-perazim. And they abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the, in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees that you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. David has just captured the city of Jerusalem and he has chosen that it should become the capital of the nation over which he has been anointed king. And we focused last time on the fact that Jerusalem had not belonged to the Jews up to that point in time. It was a Canaanite city. So it was a logical city for him to make into his capital because none of the tribes had a claim to it and therefore he couldn't be showed to be giving favoritism to one of the tribes because he was to be king over all the tribes. And so it was the perfect city. Plus the fact it was a very highly fortified location, uh, very difficult to capture, but of course God gave D David the wisdom to capture the, the city. After the city has been captured and David has been anointed king, the word finally filters down to the Philistines over here who live along the coast and have been the, the implacable foes of the Israelites here for generations. I mean, you talk about the Palestine Israeli problem over there today, well, the Philistines and the, and the Hebrews of that day had the same kind of thing going between them. David has secured the city, and the Philistines decided that this was a good time to launch an invasion of the land. David had been up to this time considered to be sort of a, a vassal of the king of Gath. The, the Philistines considered him to be a vassal because, remember, he had served the king of Gath for a while. Gath is down here. And it was believed that by the king of Gath that, that David was still, quote, his vassal, still, still serving him, even though David had disappeared from the ranks of the Philistines and had been named king of the Jews. They, they weren't bothered when he was named king of, the, of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, because as long as there wasn't also a king of, of the northern portion of the other tribes, Israel was divided. And therefore, the Philistines weren't concerned because a house divided against itself can't stand. You know, Jesus, in fact, said that. And therefore, if the Philistines face a tribe down here and these tribes up here, they're not united together. They have two separate kings. What's the problem? No problem. So they weren't worried. But as soon as the word came to them that all of Israel has chosen David to be their king, they are united behind this one man, and they knew who David was. David, of course, had been the slayer of Goliath. David had led the armies of Israel in victory after victory against the Philistines. He never lost a battle against them. So they were concerned about him being king of a united Israel. And so, alarmed, they decided to try to hit him while his kingdom is still in its infant state. He has just been named king. He can't have organized the country really yet, so they thought it would be a great time to attack him, to exploit the situation before David could consolidate his power. Scripture say, says that the Philistines sought out David. They came to seek out David. 
They wanted to capture or kill him. Their attitude was the same as ours towards bin Laden. We're going to get this guy one way or another. That was the attitude the Philistines had towards David because he was their, their inveterate foe and had been for decades, actually. So the Philistines marched right in through here from this, oh, um, up as far as Aphek up here, from about Aphek all the way down to Gaza. That's the heartland of the Philistines. And there were five major cities in there, which we've talked about before, Ashdod and Ashkelon and Ekron and Gath and so forth. Uh, these were the five main cities. So from, from this region in through here, they probably marched up. You probably can't read that word there, but that's the Sorek Valley. Runs up into the highlands here. So they probably marched up the valley here and then into this region right about there. They came up about 25 miles, marched up the hills there. They're not terribly steep, um, marching into the Judean highlands. And they spread themselves out. The scripture uses the word arrayed, which is to put in battle array, which is to spread your troops out in battle formation. With the way the ancient armies used to fight wars was, of course, very different from today. They would line up in lines in phalanxes, as, the, as it would eventually uh, turn out to be during the Greek days. And you'd have a front line and then men behind in, in rows behind, and they would march ahead, you know, like a solid formation, until battle was engaged. And then it would tend to break down into individual combats. But the two armies would usually close together with front lines coming towards each other. And so here they are arrayed, waiting for David to come with his army and to do battle with them there in the valley of Rephaim, which is only about four miles west of Jerusalem. So it's very close to the city of Jerusalem. What is a little bit hard to follow here is the fact that the passage says that David went down to the stronghold, and then later when he talked to the Lord, he asked the Lord if he should go up to attack the Philistines. Remembering, in Hebrew, Whenever they mean down and up, they mean literally elevational changes. They don't mean up north and down south. That's our way of doing it. Uh, that, that kind of concept didn't develop until map making was uh, in, in existence, and uh, we ori always oriented the map towards, uh, or towards the north because the northern hemisphere is where most people live. So whenever it says up, it means up in elevation, and down in ele when it says down, it means down in elevation. So, when it says David went down to the stronghold and then he asked the Lord if he should go up, the question becomes, where was David? Where was David in all of this? Obviously, the Philistines have come up to Jerusalem, to Valley Rephaim, which is just over one little ridge from, from Jerusalem. But if David was in Jerusalem at the time, he would have gone down to the Philistines and not come up to the Philistines because Jerusalem's higher in elevation than the Valley of Rephaim. So the question is, what really happened here? <laughs> Most commentators believe that David had not, was not at Jerusalem at the time, that he was in Hebron. Now, Hebron's at 3,000 feet in elevation. It's about four or 500 feet higher than Jerusalem. So he was probably up here, and many believe that he went down, possibly, to the cave at Adullam here, where he had hidden many times before when he was being chased around by Saul, or maybe one of the other strongholds. And so down here somewhere, and then when the Lord said go up, he would go up to the valley Rephaim, which would be higher in elevation. Now, I read one commentator who said it had to be, he had to be at Jerusalem. No matter what, he had to be at Jerusalem. Well, 
The wording doesn't seem to uh, imply that. Adolam, the cave, is only about 12 miles from Hebron. So that would have been a very easy thing for him to do. And it, and it makes a lot of sense besides, because the Philistines have gone up the Sorek Valley. Here's Adolam. If David went down there, he would actually be in a place to be between them and their homeland, which would be a good place to be, to be between the army of the Philistines and their homeland here if he just sliced across. Here, cut their lines of communication, their lines of uh, supply. Wherever David, David was located, he sought the Lord. And this is the key to the whole thing. He sought the Lord. David didn't just assume, well, I'm king now. I've got an army. There's an enemy. I'll just go attack him. No. David said, I'm going to seek the Lord to know what I should do. Probably by Urim and Thummim, but, but, whatever, by, but whatever method he used, David sought the Lord to discover what he should do. And what an example he was to his people. Here I am, the king, anointed over all the nation, and I have the power of the, of the government, the scepter, I'm, I'm in command of the army, and yet what do I do? I go before the Lord God to seek his wisdom to know what to do. In that, he, be, he became an example to the whole nation, the whole nation of Israel. And in that, of course, he's an example to us as well. Despite his success, David has had success after success after success. He has been honored by God. He has been anointed by God. And yet in all of this, in his heart was the desire to do God's will God's way. You know, it's one thing to desire to do God's will, but it's another thing to seek to do God's will God's way. You know, sometimes we want to do God's will our way, and that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to walk hand in hand with him and to seek his direction that we make each step appropriately. He knew that simply because he was king, he wasn't automatically infused with all wisdom and all power. Oh, I'm king now, so I have all the wisdom. I know what to do. Uh, not, not exactly. What we think about that, about that is in our country. We, are, we live in a democracy where we elect persons to be in leadership over our country. And what's interesting about it is you and I don't have much choice in who we choose from, do we? And as a result, we cannot assume that the people who are elected to be governor of our state or president of our country automatically have the wisdom and the knowledge to, to do that position correctly. And theoretically, that's why they have a bevy of counselors around them. Well, David sought advice from God. He realized that he needed God's direction as much now as he ever needed it before, now that he was responsible to rule God's people. So what is God's response? David humbly petitions the Lord, O oh God, I need your wisdom. Please grant me that wisdom. <laughs> Scripture tells us in the first chapter of James that God never turns his back on that kind of humble petition. If any man who lacks wisdom, if he asks of God, it says God will give it and he won't berate us for asking. He's not going to say, you dummy, you already know what to do. No, God doesn't do that because he knows that we really don't know what to do. And so he graciously responded to David and he commanded him. He said, yes, go attack the Philistines and I will give you the victory. I will give you the victory. Well, we aren't given the details of the battle. We're not told how long the battle lasted or where uh, all of the fighting took place. We're simply told that it was a rout. The enemy was the enemy ran headlong away from the battlefield, apparently, 
because David characterizes his victory as a flood of waters breaking through a river bank. He named the site of his battle Baal Parazim, which means Lord of the Breakthrough, Lord of the Overflow. Now, most of us are familiar by now that there is a noun that's used very frequently in the Old Testament that is spelled B-A-A-L, Baal, and that it means Lord or Master. And it was generally used to designate a god, a fertility god. Uh, and, and they had different other names that were used for these fertility gods amongst the Canaanites. But we know also that it was a general word. Just like today, if uh, you translate the Bible into Arabic, you don't use the word Yahweh for Lord. You use the Islamic word for God, don't you? And that's, of course, bothers some people, you know, <laughs> that Allah should be used every time you see God in here because many people automatically think Allah is specifically an uh, Islamic God, but Allah is a noun with a small a. I mean, they've made it a capital A. And of course, their God is the, is the old moon God of the ancient Arabs. And they've, they've just kind of modified him into their God. But in Arabic, the name for God is Allah. And so here you have the, the name Baal used generically and specifically. In this case, David is using the word, and it means Yahweh. And we know it means Yahweh because he uses the statement that we read in the passage, Yahweh has broken through my enemies like a breakthrough of waters. He uses that to define the word, the, the name Baal Perazim. Baal means Lord. Perazim means to overflow or to break through. And so it became a location. It became a name. The Lord, God of heaven, gave me a breakthrough here. And I overwhelmed the enemy, and they, they were forced to, to run away as before a mighty flood. We know it became a location, and probably a hill, because Isaiah, in, in the 28th chapter, refers to the mountain of Perazim. And so... The most likely scenario is that probably on the southern edge of the Rephaim Valley, on the way back down the Zoric Valley where, from whence they had come, there's a hill there, and that hill was probably the one referred to here as Baal Perazim. How great was this route? It was so great that we're told the Philistines abandoned all of their idols. They had taken their little idols with them to the battle. In the parallel passage, in 1 uh, Chronicles, the 14th chapter, Scripture tells us that after the Philistines were routed and they ran pell-mell down the hills back towards Philistia, and they left everything behind. They left their tents. They left their, their idols. They left everything. That after that, David told his men, go out and gather up all the idols. Gather up all of those little images that these guys left behind their, their gods. And we're told that they put them in a big pile and David ordered them to be burned. <sighs> Imagine all the screaming. Maybe you don't think so. I don't know. But I know that missionaries do report of times when fetishes have been thrown in piles and lit on fire that they've heard screams come out of the pile. Interestingly enough, nearly a century before, the Ark of the Covenant, which of course was the symbol of the presence of the Lord in Israel, had been taken by the Israelites out to battle just as the Philistines brought all their images as good luck charms. Oh, we're going to win this battle because we have all little images with us. So the Israelites had taken the Ark of the Covenant with them so that they would have a good luck charm as they went to the battle. And as you know, they not only didn't win the battle, but they lost the Ark to the Philistines. Here we find the same reason 
The same result, only in this case, it was the Philistines who lost the battle instead of Israel, and it was the Philistines who lost their images instead of Israel losing the ark. In the worship of God, there is no hocus pocus. In the worship of God, there's straightforward honesty as to whom we are and to whom he is, and no rigmarole, hocus pocus, gimmick, gimmicks involved. It's a matter of faith. We believe God, we understand him from his word, we act in accordance with that, and there's, you know, there's, there's no little way that we have to say things, there's no little way we have to put a little image over here or, or a little icon over there uh, to make God operate differently. None of that. Scripture is very clear about that. And so it would be here. The Philistine idols were of no use whatsoever. Apparently, the Philistines, though, were not convinced that they had legitimately lost the battle. Apparently, they believed that their, hand, their defeat at the hands of David was either a fluke, a stroke of bad luck, or maybe they had bad leadership in, in the battle. So they sent up a second army. Can you imagine what it might have been for David and Israel? Oh, my goodness. Here they come again. It's like a bad dream. And, and they come marching up, and they, they array themselves in exactly the same valley again, the valley of Rephaim. It's like, well, you know, it didn't work too well the first time. Maybe the second time will, will work better. And so they came. They invaded. And so David, we're told, sought the Lord again. He went before the Lord, and the Lord said, didn't say what he said the first time. The Lord the first time said, go attack them. I'll give you the victory. This time the Lord said, do not make a frontal assault. Circle around behind them and gather in the forest of balsam trees. Now, balsam trees, um, in that part of the world, there was a couple of varieties of aromatic herbs which grew to maybe 10 or 12 feet in height, which gave off gums that were used that were thought to have medicinal values. Uh, even today, we know the word balsam. Some of you use balsamic vinegar. So apparently there was a grove of these on probably the, the, the west side of the valley of Rephaim. And so the army of Israel was to go around and get in that grove, hide, hide themselves from the enemy, and wait for God. And God said, you'll know I'm there when you hear above you in the tops of the trees the sound as if it were a marching army going overhead. Thump, 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 thump. Be pretty. <laughs> it would be a, a little bit of a frightening thing, you know, if you didn't, weren't expecting it, even if you were expecting it, you know, to hear this. And at the moment that that marching ceased, you were to attack. They were to attack because he knew that the Lord had already routed the enemy as David then launched his attack. What is the purpose of all this? Well, I mean, God could have given the victory exactly the same way he did the first time. Why does, David, why, why does God say, well, this time circle around behind and get in the trees and listen to the marching of the feet. And when, they, when the marching feet go over, then you attack. Why? Nothing God does is capricious. He does it for a purpose. And I think the purpose here is H-U-M-I-L-I-T-Y, humility, that David will know that he must do what God commands him to do, no matter how different or maybe odd it may seem. He needs to know that his victory always comes from the Lord and it never comes by his own might or by his own power. It is not by, by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As he said to Zechariah, so it, it resounds down through the pages of history, the, the halls of history, whatever you want to say,
is always true. Victory comes from the Lord. True victory. Oh, yeah, I mean, we have, there are victories here and victories there of some sort. But these are not victories that matter. Victories that count. Victories that have eternal purpose come from the Lord alone. They were to realize that no matter how successful they appeared to be in their own ways, I mean, David could be looked upon as a mighty man. He had gone out single-handedly and killed this giant Goliath. So people could have thought of, of David as, as sort of a superhero, but David knew he was no superhero. And so it was to remind the men and women of Israel that the true author of victory is always the Lord God himself. It's a very important lesson that self-dependence, which is exactly what Saul dis exhibited. Remember Saul when he was king? He went out in his own might and, and he fought his battles and, and, and he, he had no time of day for the Lord. But self-dependence will bring calamity. Self-dependence will bring calamity in the end. Whereas God-dependence will always result in ultimate victory. In this case, it would, it would result in defeat of the Philistine army and the exaltation of Israel and the exaltation of Israel's king, David. And how loudly does this speak to us in this country where our culture proclaims personal independence and self-reliance? I can do it myself. Something little kids often say when they're two years old, I can do it myself. And then they grow up, keep saying, I can do it myself. And people, there, many in our culture think that's a great thing. You know, yeah, you can do it yourself. Self-made men and women. These are our models in our society. We think of J.D. Rockefeller who built the first mammoth fortune in this country by self-dependence. And Andrew Carney who came to, Carnegie who came from Scotland, a poor, poor little boy, and grew to be a multi-hundred millionaire, one of the richest men in America, the founder of United States Steel. And I mean, there's a whole list of them. Henry Ford and, and of course our computer software moguls of today who supposedly are all self-made multi-million and billionaires. I mean, self-reliant. But that's one of the quickest ways to just never get on the path that God has set before us. Because if we never realize that we need God, why are we ever going to look for Him? If we think we can do it ourselves. But that's a delusion. Because every single man or woman who has done it himself or herself has had to face death and has not been able to say, nope, I'm not going. If I can't take it with me, I'm staying here. You know, I'm not going. No, they've all died. Napoleon is dead. Caesar is dead. Cleopatra is dead. They're all dead. The great equalizer is death. The clear teaching of Scripture is God-dependence. And within God's family, interdependence. It, we depend upon one another. Now, I don't mean we go along begging from each other, but I mean we pray for one another, we encourage one another, we are there for one another when the need is. And, and if there is even a, a physical need of some sort, a financial need even, we're to aid one another. That's God's program. It's the way God does it. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I abide in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nada, nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does Jesus mean by that? 
that I can't go to work tomorrow without him? That I can't buy a car tomorrow without him? No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the things that matter. That without him, we cannot, we cannot have meaning in this life. I hear this all the time. People want to know, I, I, how do I have meaning? How can my life count for something? And we've seen this particularly since 9-11, have we not? You see it over and over again as, as they talk with uh, survivors of, of the disaster and family members and so forth. They want to say, well, as long as my loved one died for a purpose. You know, really, we all want to have meaning. We all want to have purpose. We, just having toys doesn't really matter. You get really tired of that after a while. And pretty soon you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, yuck, another day with my toys. This is not any fun anymore at all. Because we're, we're built to, to want meaning and to have meaning in life. And the only way we can have that meaning is through God, through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other way. That's why these Palestinian extremists are blowing themselves up. They think that they have meaning. Because they've seen what's happened to others who've blown themselves up. Their pictures are on, uh, on billboards and, and their families get money from the, uh, you know, the, the religious leaders if, if, because they blew themselves up. You see, they want meaning. And I would just hate to be in their shoes when they stand before God with this meaning that they thought they had and discover that they had it all wrong. David knew that his success was totally dependent upon the Lord's empowerment and thus he obeyed the Lord explicitly. The Lord said, go behind the enemy, gather in the balsam trees, and wait for the sound. Waiting is not a good thing for most of us. By nature, we're impatient. I want to do it yesterday. The result, however, was absolutely dramatic. The Philistines were struck down, the scripture says, from Geba to Gibeon, which unless you know the geography doesn't mean a thing. That's why it's very important to always have a map because these events happen to real place, to real people. In 1 Chronicles chapter 14, we read that they were chased from Gibeon to Gezer. It's Gibeon. There's Gezer. Geba. Geba, which is used in 2 Samuel, is the name of a real place. There was a place called Gibeah, Geba back up this way, but that's wrong direction. But like the word Baal, it's a, it's a generic noun. Giba is a generic noun. It means height. You know, like country heights and, you know, this height and that height. It, it, it's, it just means height. And so in Samuel, it probably is simply saying that the, that the um, Philistines fled from the height down to Gezer. Not from the city of Giba, but from the height on down. And Chronicles tells us, that they went past Gibeon on, on the way. And, uh, of course, Gibeon is a mound. The town of Gibeon is on a height. So that could be the height that is even being alluded to in 2 Samuel. It's about five miles from the valley of Rephaim to Gibeon, and then it's 20 miles down this ridge here to Gezer. Now, what's very fascinating is that this ridge is called the Beth Horon Ridge. There's two towns on it called Upper and Lower Beth Haran. And what is significant is that this ridge has been used dozens of times by retreating and invading armies. It's a fairly treeless ridge. It's fairly easy of access. And so it just became the main route up to, towards Jerusalem. In fact, the last major group to use the Beth Haran Ridge were the British in 1917 
when the British under General Allenby uh, were trying to capture Jerusalem against the Turks and they marched up the same place. And you can go along the Beth Horon Ridge today and you can see trenches cut in the ground that were cut by the Turks as they were trying to defend themselves against the invading British in 1917. So a ridge that was used 3,000 years ago has still been used in, in you know, less than 100 years ago for the same purpose. And so they ran pell-mell down that ridge back to the town of Gezer. Now, Gezer didn't belong to them. Gezer was a Canaanite city that was supposed to be within the tribal land of Ephraim, but the Ephraimites had never captured the town. And so they fled bound past uh, Gezer. Eventually, Gezer will be captured, however. We know that Gezer will be captured probably by David because in the ninth chapter of 1 Kings, we're told that Solomon fortified Gezer. Solomon made it into a, one of his major fortified cities. Solomon established several major points of fortification during the time of, uh, of his reign. So David had a wonderful victory twice now over the Philistines. And both times they fled in great haste to get away from his army. We're not even told the numbers that are killed. Scripture doesn't even say, well, you know, 10,000 died or whatever. It doesn't even give any figures. So you can imagine the great numbers that died as they fled from this battle. We're not told any place during the time of David that David conquered Philistia, that he subjected Philistia. But in another couple of chapters in, in this book of 2 Samuel, we're going to discover that he rendered the Philistines powerless. What that means is that he established hegemony over them. Hegemony is different from actual physical rule. Hegemony is what the Soviet Union had over uh, Poland and uh, Albania, well, not so much Albania, but uh, you know, Hungary and, and those other countries after World War II. Uh, not direct rule. There was a little bit of a borderline there because they often had Soviet troops in those countries. But So David had power over the Philistines, but he didn't actually occupy Philistia and absorb it into his kingdom. This is the, the map of David and Solomon's reign. And you'll notice that Philistia still exists here outside of their territory. Much truncated, much truncated, uh, just from Gaza to Joppa and other territory they had possessed up in here was lost. So just the heartland of Philistia continued to exist even in the days of David and Solomon at the height of Israeli, Israeli power. Israelite power. And Phoenicia, along the coast here, was never conquered either. That's not to say that David could not have, but he did not. But he did press his rule all the way up into Syria and at one point clear to the Euphrates River at one point in time. So much more than modern Israel occupies today. Modern Israel today occupies the area from right about up in there across and down here. And then, of course, you take out the, the West Bank through here and the Gaza area down there. So all of this territory here, which is part of Lebanon and part of Syria and uh, Jordan over here uh, was part of the David Solomon reign, but, but is not part of modern day state of Israel. There are prophecies in scripture that tell us that Israel at one time would rule from the river of Egypt to the great river. The great river is the Euphrates. The river of Egypt, well, is that the Nile? Well, they debate that. But Israel has never ruled, if those are the parameters, Israel has never ruled it from the Euphrates to the River Nile. But if it means from the River Euphrates to the Wadi al-Arish, which is called the Brook of Egypt, then during David and Solomon's time, 
that kingdom did exist. But some feel that that's what's going to happen in the end times, that Israel in the end times will expand to include the territory that God at one time had promised them and which they had never yet occupied. Well, if that's going to happen, it's going to take a miracle, right? Because it's not happening now. In fact, they're being asked to give up more territory, and they have given up territory. So that's, in 1967, it looked like it was going to happen, right? In 1967, they took over the whole Sinai Peninsula, and, and they took over the Golan Heights up there, which, which they still hold. But uh, it started to look that way, but hasn't continued in that direction. We don't have time to get into the sixth chapter, but I want to just say that as we look at the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, a wonderful thing happens. David decides that the Ark of the Covenant which has been incognito for over half a century, should be returned to the center of Israelite worship. And therefore, he goes to get it and bring it up to Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a fabulous story that we find in the sixth chapter of Second Samuel, and we'll look at that next week.